All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a Daily Power Parsha, a very special edition of DPP. Why is it special, you may ask? It is special because this is to the day, two years since we started Daily Power Parsha. I checked our uploads and we're at 399 episodes, but that's only because I have not uploaded the last few days, which means that we are, if you're listening to this, we are past 400 episodes. So we have over 400 episodes that have been uploaded, video and audio. We have um, two years of Daily Power Parsha in the books. And I want to read to you the email that got it started. Okay, here was the email that I sent out two years ago. And it reads like this. The day of the email, the date of the email was, hold on, Tuesday... March 17th. Okay, so it was it's a... Arab. No, but I mean, it's Arab, right? It's so. Arab. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, it's about two years. All right, we're close. Well, it's the 14th. All right, it's fine. Are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't, the dates are irrelevant when we talk about years. Okay, it reads like this. Dear friends. Oh, do you mind getting that? might be fair. All right, dear friends. In these difficult and anxious times, we need more than ever the guidance, anchor, and spiritual comfort of Torah. And so in response to the upheaval we are facing we are all facing, I'm excited to announce a brand new online study initiative from the in-town Jewish Academy. This initiative is, dem is democratizing Jewish uh, Torah learning like never before, creating interactive and engaging study spaces that are accessible wherever you are. You can now partic uh, participate in Jewish study and discussion at your convenience from whatever device you're on with just the click of a button. We've created, hi Faye, um, feel free to grab some champagne, some hamantash, and to celebrate. This initiative, uh, no, I read that already. We've created a new array of weekly learning opportunities that perfectly fit this new format. Programs that are both fun and inspiring. See below for a new weekly schedule along with links to participate. I encourage you to join us whenever you can from wherever you are for authentic and meaningful Jewish study. This will help us all remain grounded in these uncertain times. I look forward to you being part of the learning conversation. And I wrote sincerely my name, Intent Jewish Academy, etc. On that original schedule was Daily Power Parsha. And I, <laughs> I laugh. 12 to 12.15. <laughs> I laugh at 12 to 12.15. 12 to 12.15, as if. No, and listen, we go a little bit longer. Um, Kabbalah Coffee is on here, of course. Monday Mimer, we used to study for a little bit. We did a discourse Monday nights. Tuesday Talmud. We did Monday Mimer, Tuesday Talmud. You can see I was going for alliteration. We had Torah studies Wednesday. Thursday was cooking with Rabbi Ari. Who remembers that? Cooking with that Rabbi Ari. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. Trip down memory lane. We should do it again. Yeah. We should do cooking with Rabbi Ari again. In person. In person. Sure. I still got my cookbook. Remember when we did that? I, we did that a few years yeah. ago. We had a cookbook. Yeah. Maybe you guys should come over to my house and we'll cook for Shabbos. Yeah. yeah. You guys will cook for Shabbos. I'll watch. <laughs> it's great. I don't see this. I see this as a this is a yeah. This is a win-win. This is like a win-win. Come over. We got some potatoes to peel. Anyway, all joking aside, um, it is. It's been a great two years. I'm not saying this to some to wrap it up. I'm just saying, like as you know, as a as a as a milestone. It's been a wonderful two years of study. Over 400 episodes, 400 sessions of, of this class, Daily Power of Parsha, which is the most regular class that we do. I don't think we'd, we've done a more regular class ever than literally Monday through Friday every single day. I mean, 
barring holidays or whatever. So certainly very special. Thank you all for being part of it. And it's, uh, it's really great to, uh, to celebrate. L'chaim. Cheers. I noticed that I had trouble reading the email. And then I thought about the champagne that I've been drinking. But there's no connection. There's definitely no... Joking. All right, let's, uh, let's... I need to say just one thing. Yeah, Mark. Well, thank you so much to you. It's been, uh, you know, a lot of dedication on your part and uh, kept us, um, you know, feeling amazing for two years uh, when we were at home. And it's also uh, inspire, you know, I can take talk for myself and I'm sure it's the case for as a group, but uh, inspire us to uh, take on more, you know, Torah studies and uh, mitzvot and uh, look where it led me. I'm now in a Jewish day school. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's amazing. So thank you so much. Very special. Thank you for the thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Mark. You know, you began this when we were bogged down in the pandemic. Yeah. And we were locked down. And, and what I can, the parallel I can draw is, you know, I play golf every week with Stanley Herman. Mm-hmm. And it was so liberating to be outside, to play golf with the sun shining on, on, our, on my face and all that, in the midst of the pandemic. And this is analogous. Nice. That this brought the light in. Nice. In a very dark time. And it was something to look forward to every day. Amazing. And it was, it Thank you, Mark. It was absolutely wonderful. Mark is saying that this is a ray of sunshine. Yeah. More than one. More than one. Rays of sunshine in his life. Like golf. That's a high level. That's a high. <laughs> like golf, that's a very high, it's a very lofty level. You know the story about the rabbi who decides he's a golf, he's a golf fanatic, and he decides that even though it's Yom Kippur, he's got to play around. So in the break... It's a classic joke. Everyone knows this joke, right? It's a, we have to tell it anyway. Fits the golf theme. So he decides in the break, on Yom Kippur service, you know, there's usually a break after Musa between Mincha, maybe a few hours. He decides to get in a very quick round. You know, Yom Kippur. Anyway, he's playing. And first hole, he gets a hole in one. He's never got a hole in one. First hole, hole in one. The angels on high thunder to God. God, how could you allow the rabbi desecrating Yom Kippur, playing golf to get a hole in one. And God says to the angels, yeah, but who's he going to tell? Who's he going to tell? Okay, friends, all right, that's it. Let's, uh, let's jump in. I, I have one thing to say. Yes, Troy, thanks. Yeah. And I'd like to also add that uh, the great thing about this, we've, we really created a little community, and, and I think that everybody that participates gives uh, a lot, like, Donna from her jewelry and all that's come from that and Sandrine and Mark for always making sure we do the right thing by people in need mm. and whatever. It's just everything. And it's, it's been, I mean, working from home, it has been our community and it's not very such special. a rigid Zoom meeting. Right. Very, very special. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you all for being part of this in person, online, now with hybrid stuff. Amazing. Very, very special. Okay, let's jump in and do some Torah study, because that is also why we're here, in addition to all the other fun stuff. Um, okay, so I have this up on my, on my side. 
You guys have the copies. I, I decided everyone should be on the same page. We'll have the same translation. And Mark, you have your Chumash as well. Okay, so let's jump in. The goal today, it will be, you know, hopefully the first two readings, or maybe the first reading, if we can only do that, but we'll see. All right, this is now up on the screen. You should see this Torah reading for Tzav, Leviticus chapter 6, reading number 1. Tzav is the second Torah portion of the book of Leviticus. So this is book number 3, portion number 2. It goes, Vayikra Tzav. So Vayikra was last week, Tzav is this week. And we continue the theme of the sacrifices, the sacrificial service. So as a quick, as a quick recall, quick recap, Last week, we introduced the sacrificial rite, sacrificial service, and we talked about a number of categories of sacrifices, including the Ola offering, which is the voluntary donation burnt offering. We talked about the Shlomim, a voluntary offering that is not completely burnt, but is divided amongst the altar, the Kohen, and the person who brought it. We spoke about the sin offering, person or community who commits a sin inadvertently, unintentionally, and who brings a sacrifice for atonement. We had some other, toward the end of the reading, we had some more um, other forms of sin offerings or guilt offerings where a person does, doesn't just make a mistake, but actually intentionally lies about something that they have that they said they didn't have. Anyway, we talked about other forms of offerings as well. Now the Torah in the second, in the second uh, Torah portion gets into a little bit more detail about some of the things that we've already mentioned. So you'll see how now it's adding kind of dimensionality. It's kind of adding a little bit more um, details, more details to, to our conversation. Leviticus chapter 6, verse number 1. Let's begin. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying. That's something that we, we got to get used to because that verse is, is everywhere. All right, God says to Moses, command Aaron and his sons. Remember, Aaron was the high priest. The sons were the priests. So this is not a message for Moses as much as it is for Aaron. So God says to Moses, Tell this to Aaron. Tzav. The name of the portion is Tzav. Tzav, right here in the Hebrew. Tzav means command. Okay? So command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering is the Ola offering, the first offering that we spoke about last week. So the, this is the law of the burnt offering. In other words, these are additional laws of the burnt offering. That is, the burnt offering, which, which burns on the altar all night until morning. Okay, so here... Here's a very important detail that we mentioned last week that here the Torah explicitly states. And that is when it comes to the burnt offerings, if you did not have time to burn all the offerings during the day, you can burn it overnight. You cannot bring an offering at night. You can only bring an offering during the day. In other words, like initiate it. But if you didn't have a chance to, to, to complete the, the burning of the, of the offering, you can do it all night until morning. This is, parenthetically, and I mentioned this Shabbos on Shabbat at our Shabbat Learner Service, this is why we have the third of the three daily prayers. We have the morning prayer service, the afternoon prayer service, and the nighttime prayer service. The nighttime prayer service corresponds to this uh, ritual of burning the remainders of the offerings all night. So you can say, you can pray. In current times, we dive in Mayrev, we dive in, we pray the evening, the nighttime service. We can do it until daybreak. Let's continue. And the fire of the altar shall burn with it. I guess that's kind of obvious that the fire of the altar shall burn with it. That means we have to continue to stoke the fire of the altar with more wood. We have to add wood to that fire. 
We're going to do a few verses and then circle back to some Rashi's and some additional insights. And the Kohen, these are details that we have not yet discussed, like last week. And the Kohen shall don his linen tunic, michnesei vad. No, 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 I'm sorry. His linen tunic, and he shall don his linen trousers on his flesh. And he shall lift, listen to this, he shall lift out the ashes into which the fires consumed the burnt offering upon the altar and put them down next to the altar. This is called the Trumas Hadashen, the lifting of the ashes. This was not to clean, let me just specify this, clarify this. This was not intended to, to clean the altar from all the ashes. This was a ceremony, a, a symbolic um, representation of the ashes. It was almost like another part of the ritual of the offering experience. You lift some of the ashes, right, and put them next to the altar. It wasn't to clean it. If you were cleaning it, you got to get shovels out and do a lot, of, a lot of sweeping. This was just taking out some and putting them next to the altar. Why were there ashes? Just to clarify, because you're burning animals on the altar. You're burning parts of animals on the altar, you're going to end up with ashes. That's what happens when you burn things, you end up with ashes. So you take some of those ashes and you put it next to the altar. Let's continue. Verse 4, we get to the next, the next mitzvah. He shall then take off his garments those white linen garments, and put on other garments. And he shall take out the ashes to a clean place outside the camp. This is not, not, the, not the lifting of the ashes. This is the removal of the ashes. There's two different things that you do with ashes. One is you take some, you lift up some of the ashes and then put it down next to the altar. And the other mitzvah, which is verse 4, which is what we just read, is removing the ashes because... It gets in the way of fire. If you have too many ashes that build up, it gets in the way of fire, and you move it out. Does anybody have a fireplace? Let's just jump in here for a second. You have a fireplace? Anybody have a real fireplace? You have a real fireplace? I don't have a real fireplace. I have fake gas. I mean, it's real gas, but like a fake, a gas fireplace with fake logs. You got the real deal. Joy, you also have the real deal? Okay, so I, t I mean. I have had, but not right now. Got it. So, but, but the way it works is it just straight up produces ashes, right? Yeah. So you have to remove it, right, at some point. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to light a fire, right? Is that correct? Yeah, it'll block, it'll block the draw. Got it. Yeah. Sometimes the ashes help start the fire, but if you get too much, then Got you it. do have to thin it out. Too smoky or whatever. So that's literally what the Torah is saying is there's, a, there's two mitzvahs. One is, one is like a lifting of the ashes and a putting them right down next to it. And then there's the more pragmatic, okay, clear away the ashes. And those ashes, the second, when you clear them away, you take them outside the camp. We said this last week, if you recall, when you were burning the, 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 um, the sin offering, you burnt it in the place where you remove, in the clean place where you've taken out the ashes to. We didn't talk about taking out the ashes until this week. So you kind of, kind of have to put both together. So this week or today, we're learning about removing the ashes. Um, outside the camp to a clean place. And then last week we learned about burning the sin offering in that place outside the camp. But either way, we have two different commandments regarding the ashes. Okay. Again, we're going to go back to Rashi in a moment. I want to do two more verses. Verse number five and six. Verse five. And the fire, listen to this, and the fire on the altar shall burn on it. It shall not go out. You know what that means? 
It's got to continuously Eternal. be burning. Eternal flame. Ah, oh, you guys see it. Eternal flame. Shall constantly be burning on the altar. It shall not go out. The Kohen, in order that this should happen, in order that that fire should not go out, the Kohen shall kindle wood upon the altar every morning, and upon it he shall arrange the burnt offering and cause the fats of the peace offering to go up and smoke upon it. Essentially, there always has to be wood on the altar arranged for the sacrifices to be burnt, whether it's the burnt offering or the peace offering, whatever it was, it has to be burnt on that wood, on that fire, which is stoked by the wood. And to double down or triple down on this, verse 6, a continuous fire shall burn upon the altar, and just in case you missed the, mess, the memo, it shall not go out. That fire, God does not want that fire to go out. So we have, um, in the kitchen here at Chabad, we have, um, it's like an industrial kitchen. You guys have seen it, yeah? Yeah, it's right here at the corner, yeah, right down the steps. I call it the mezzanine level, right? We have the upper level, lower level, I call that the mezzanine. Anyway, so... It's nice that the sanctuary is at the top level. Yeah, yeah, where else are you going to put the sanctuary? At the top, exactly. Get the, uh, the penthouse. So, um, there is a pilot light, or pilot light, fire, whatever, that burns in that kitchen. Constantly. Doesn't go out. There's a hot plate that's always hot. Seems pretty inefficient to me, but that's the way it is. There's a pilot light that's always on. I don't know if that's the way the appliances work or the way the, the certification works. My oven is not always on, is it? The newer ones. <coughs> Mine's gas, yeah. I think, I think the newest ones use electric, electric ignition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. until that, in fact, I still have like gas logs downstairs. There's always a, a, a pilot lock going. Always a pilot. Okay. Is it not considered a Shabbos setting so that you can cook on Shabbos? I mean, you couldn't, cook you couldn't cook something from scratch, even if the fire's already on. It could only be, yeah, you would have to be careful about how you use it. But I think it's more pragmatic. It's more for activation. It, ease, it, it makes the activation easy to go, ready to go. Ready to go, yeah. It's also a safety thing. It's a, it is a I figure it's something with the, with the way it has to be done, not to ignite things. Because of gas coming through. Right. You want it burned, otherwise you get the Yeah, that makes sense. I don't understand why the plate's hot. Why is Because I, I guess the pilot's under that plate or something. Yeah. I don't know. That, that plate is all... If you keeps think like... Warm. Yeah, it keeps... It keeps stuff warm. It keeps stuff warm, right. But it's always, it's always warm. So like if you're not aware of it and you... Yeah. Like just, just know it's always, it's always got that heat. Now let's do some Rashi's. So, oh, so essentially that's what God is saying. I mean, not exactly, but God is saying to keep the fire, keep the fire going. Okay, um, oh, Sandrine just signed off. All right, good. So glad that she was able to join. All right, let's jump into some Rashi's. Rashi immediately uh, comments on the word Tzav. Tzav, as Aaron, command Aaron. And Rashi says, Tzav, the expression Tzav always denotes urging to promptly and meticulously fulfill a particular commandment for the present and for future generations. In other words, Tzav it's, it's beautiful in the Hebrew. It's ain't tzav al-lashen. Zeros miyad al Tzav means zeros. It's like, it's urging. It's like, you got to do it. It's, it's, it's really like a lot of uh, encouragement, not only in the short term, but for all time. So when God says to Moses, command Aaron, what he's telling him is not just for one generation, but excite and encourage Aaron that he should tell his kids 
and that they should be so excited that they'll tell their kids who will tell their kids for all time. In other words, to keep, keep the chains moving, so to speak. Keep that, keep the message flowing throughout all time. Rabbi Shimon taught, Scripture especially needs to urge people to full commandments where monetary loss is involved. In other words, where a person stands to potentially lose money, you definitely need to encourage people to do it anyway. Now, how, how is this losing money? So yeah. Mark has a footnote. Go, jump in. This is from Taurus Kohanim. That's the, that's the Midrash okay. on, on Leviticus. I mean, do you have that? Do you want me to read that? Mm. <coughs> Go. It says the Kohanim suffer financial loss because they are not paid for the sacrificial service. In order to perform it, they must give up their regular means of earning a livelihood. Even the hides that they receive from the Ola offerings are insufficient to make up this loss of income. The Torah makes this point in the context of the Ola offering, rather than other offerings, because the loss of income, in this case, is especially great. With other animal offerings, the Kohanim receive both meat and hides. Right. With the Ola offering, they receive only hides. So thank you for reading that. So Mark's footnote, Mark's Rashi Chumash, in the footnote, it clarifies why there is monetary loss for the Kohen in this case because this was an Ola offering, and an Ola offering is completely burnt in the altar. All the Kohen gets are the skins, the hides of the animal, but everything else is burnt. Doesn't even get a steak out of it. With a shlamim, huh? Right there. Oh, all, with, um, with what's it called again? With, uh, with other offerings, you get, uh, you get some meat. With the shlamim, you get some meat. Here, the Kohen gets nothing. So, and the Kohen's like, I don't have a day job. This is all I do, and I'm not getting anything from it. I'm just give, bringing, you know, so, Yankel Shmero Beryl wants to bring a gift for God, an Ola offering. So the Kohen has to do it, has to facilitate. What does the Kohen get? Nothing. Maybe the Kohen has a tip jar, right? Maybe, maybe a tip jar. I don't know. But meanwhile, the Kohen's serving. The Kohen has to bring the offering. Yeah, you ever wrangle an animal? I haven't wrangled an animal. Animals look pretty big to wrangle. I don't know. It's like a whole thing. You got to shake the animal, the blood, cut it up, and, and it's a. It's not an easy thing. It's hours of work, right? And and what do you get out of it? Garnished. Garnished. A belt. Garnished. Nothing, right? So so it, yeah. So so God tells Moses, tell Aaron and his kids, do it with love, do it with Jesus, do it with alacrity. Hey, maybe if you do it with real alacrity. You have extra time to get a job. No, I'm kidding. But no, the point is to, uh, <laughs> joking, but do it with love and excitement because this is God's will. Okay, here we go. This is the law of the burnt offering. Next Rashi, very important, and I mentioned this before. This passage comes to teach us that the burning of sacrificial fats and parts of an animal is valid throughout the entire night. Oh, you guys can't talk about Rashi. Oh. <laughs> I have the <laughs> whoops. <laughs> I got the printouts, but you're here and you're listening. Yeah. yeah. Okay. There you go. I'm not making this up. <laughs> Mark will fact check me, <laughs> right? So, so here we go. So you can burn the fats, the fats that need to be burned, and the parts of the animal that need to be burned throughout the entire night, following the day it's offered. Not like three nights later. If you bring it on, but today's Monday. If you bring it on Monday during the day. It can burn throughout the entire night tonight into Tuesday morning, up until daybreak. Um, uh, I'm going to skip the rest of that Rashi. That is the burnt offering. I, I, why did I just think of Tom Brady? It's so weird. 
so strange that I thought of Tom Brady. I don't know about sacrifices coming up and being brought down and not, oh, whoops, a switcheroo. Yeah, I'm retiring, I'm not retiring. Well done. Well done, Thomas. Okay, back inside. Back inside. This is the burnt offering. Um, oh, yeah, I would say not. Yeah, in- excludes animals that have cohabited with a human. Okay, yes, that would be invalid. Fine, good. Um, the Kohen wears what? The Kohen wears a linen tunic. That refers to the ketonet, the long tunic. Um, why does it say midoy vad? Midoy means the measure of linen. Why measure? Ah, look at this. To teach us, says Rashi, that the tunic must be made according to the size of the Kohen wearing it. It's got to be tailored. What do you mean, one size fits all? If you're, if you're a Kohen, right? If you're a Kohen in the temple, they don't just say, yeah, just grab a tunic. They're all the same size. No, they get it tailored. You take it to the temple tailor, and that's it. You guys know the story about the, the, about the tailor, about the Jewish tailor? Here's the story about the Jewish tailor. So this fellow buys a beautiful fabric from Italy. Like, be- Italy is good fabric? Yes? Yes, yes good wine? Yeah, L'chaim, yes. apparently. <laughs> so this guy buys a beautiful fabric. It drapes, I think as we say about fabric, right? It drapes, yeah, it falls nicely, oh, falls nicely. Dra- beautifully. You hold it up, it, it doesn't jump up. It's beautiful, amazing. Fine. Brings it to this Jewish tailor. And he says to the tailor, I want you to make a suit. Tailor takes the measurements. Sure. When is it going to be done? Says, give me three weeks. Comes back three weeks later. Tailor says, it's not ready. Comes back. Come back in another two weeks. Comes back after two weeks. It's not ready. Need another week. This goes on week after week after week. Months later, finally, 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 the tailor says, the suit is done. Come on in to pick it up. Comes in, puts it on. It's beautiful. It's mamish beautiful. It's like, it's like unbelievable. So the man says to the tailor, you did a great job, but it, it, it took so long. It took so long. God created the entire universe in seven days, six days, right? And the tailor says, have you seen the suit, though? You've seen God's work. Have you seen my suit? Anyway, the punchline is, yeah, his suit is even nicer than... All right, that's the punchline. I, I felt the need to explain it because I don't think I said the punchline correctly, but that was the point. Back inside. So the, the, the bottom line is that the tunic should be tailored according to the measure of the Kohen. On his flesh, Rashi says, nothing must interpose between the trousers and his flesh. Okay? Form-fitting. Very form-fitting. <laughs> nothing between the trousers and the flesh. Okay, now, he shall lift out the ashes. This, this is what I said before. There were two services with the ashes. One is lifting and putting next to the altar. The other one is removing it outside the camp. So the first service, Rashi says, he would scoop out a full pan of ashes from the innermost mass of ashes from burnt out sacrificial parts on the altar. So from the middle, not from the top. He would scoop out from the middle, from the belly of the ashes, and would deposit them at the eastern side of the ramp that led up to the altar. The eastern side of the ramp. So the altar faced north-south. Right? It was north-south. This is not north-south. This is east-west. East, oh. No. The temple, the temple building. North so the temple way. building. North is, north is this way. Okay. North is this way. 
Okay, so then let's do it this way. So the temple was configured east-west. No, I you're right. North is... No, 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 one second. No, 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 north is, north is there. North is there, north is there. So, so one second. So the temple was configured like a rectangle, and it was like this way, okay? The Holy of Holies was toward the west. You had the temple building, the, or the Mishkan building, and then outside you had the big courtyard, but it was shaped like a rectangle this way. But within the rectangle this way, the altar went this way, north-south. So you had a ramp going up, and then the altar was a square in the middle, but a ramp going up. They put it on the eastern side of the ramp, which would have been this side of the ramp. So he takes the shovel, sticks it into the belly of the ashes, and deposits it on, on this side, this side of the ramp. Okay. Next. Uh, next Rashi, the ashes of which, which the fire has consumed the birth offering. Uh, yeah, we got that upon the altar. Uh, uh, uh. Oh, look at this. Upon the altar. If he finds any animal parts which were not yet consumed, you know, while he's shoveling the ashes, if he encounters a piece of the animal that wasn't yet fully charred, he must put them, the animal parts, back onto the altar after raking the burning embers in all directions and scooping out some of the innermost ashes because it is said the burnt offering upon the altar, in other words, that means that uh, um, while it's still in the form of burnt offering, and not yet ashes must remain upon the altar. Okay, fine. I'm fine with that. Um, he shall take off his garments. Rashi says this is not an obligation. It doesn't have to. But rather, it's etiquette, but proper practice, that by taking out the ashes, he should not soil the garments in which he constantly officiates. In other words, the, the, the garments that he wears to serve in the temple, he should not be wearing the same garments to take out the ashes and remove them outside the camp. The little ashes, the one scoop of ashes, he could do with his garments. But if he's taking out the rest, the bulk of the ashes, and removing them, he's going to ruin his linen garments. I mean, who would scoop out ashes while wearing nice garments? Rashi says, by analogy, the clothes worn by a servant while cooking a pot of food for his master, should, he should not wear when he mixes a glass of wine for his master. Right? That when, you're, when you're chefing, when you're cooking, it's splashing, it's whatever, you're getting dirty. When you serve wine, which is funny that he should say serving wine, because literally, we had wine today, right? When you're serving wine, you wear a little bit of a nicer, uh, nicer garb. So the one scoop is symbolic. The one scoop is symbolic, but it's still, I mean, it's a mitzvah, but it's no, not right. going to get him dirty. Right. But the bulk of it, yeah. No, it made me think, it, it made me think of at a funeral, because we, don't, doesn't people do a symbolic? We do, yeah, we do. Well, that, that mitzvah is actually to bury. Right. So that's not, not just symbolic, it's actually burying. You're talking about the, you're talking about don't the. Do one shovel? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it depends. It's uh, most, yeah. We do one shovel, but then at the end, the goal is to actually cover. Also, oh, the community is actually together. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Um, hence, the verse continues, and put on other garments, which means inferior to the garments of the kuna, the priesthood that he'd been wearing till now. So he wears nice white linen garments to do the service, and when he changes into other clothes, he doesn't have to, but he should, because he's now removing the ashes, and it's going to get him dirty. Okay, Rashi clarifies, yeah. He has to do this every day? Every day. Every day there's a mitzvah, yes. Every day. Um, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. But next Rashi clarifies. The first was a mitzvah. The second wasn't a mitzvah every day. The, the, to lift up some of the ashes and ceremoniously put it next to it was every day. But to remove the ashes, to clean it out, was 
was as needed, on an as needed basis. And that's literally the next Rashi. I'm going to read it. Um, by contrasting verse 3 with verse 4, uh, we see that there were two distinct obligations with regard to removing ashes from the altar. Number one was Trumas Hadeshen, lifting out some of the innermost ashes from the altar and placing them next to the altar. And B, Hotzah Hadeshen, removing, taking out the heap of ashes from atop the altar when they became overflowing to a place outside the camp. Thus, our verse here refers to ashes which were heaped up in an apple-shaped pile of ashes upon the altar. In other words, it was just like a big pile that eventually has to be removed, otherwise it's not going to work. When this pile became so large that there was no longer any room on the wood pile, on an as basis, the Kohen would take it out. Now, this was not a daily obligation, but lifting out some of the innermost ashes was a daily obligation. So there's two mitzvahs here. Truma Sadeshin and Hotza Sadeshin, lifting up the ashes and removing the ashes. Lifting up is you lift up some, you put it next to the altar. Removing means you're just cleaning it out. The first was a daily obligation. The second was an, um, on an as-needed basis. Okay, Does good. Does it have anything to do with apples and honey? No. No, just I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. Now, the next piece. And here I want to throw in some mystical explanation. The Torah says that the fire on the altar shall burn. It shall burn. Um, you should know Rashi says in the Talmud, the rabbis differ regarding the number of wood piles that had to be arranged on the altar. There's a question about how many wood piles on the altar. Okay, that's, we'll leave that for the Talmud. Um, but bottom line is, there had to be a wood pile arranged in a very specific way. Um, this goes to what we were discussing in last week's Torah class, too, right? Yes. Yeah, last week we spoke about how you get that wood in the yeah. first place. How do you get the wood? You've got to chop the wood. When you finish chopping the wood, which is a violent action with metal, you break the axe. You celebrate. We don't no more chopping. We're done with the chopping. Um, let's go to the next verse. And actually, here's where it gets um, mystical. A continuous fire, verse 6, continuous fire shall burn upon the altar, shall not go out. Rashi says, the fire must also be kindled from the fire on the outer altar. Ah, look at that. Look at that. The fire regarding which says to kindle the lamps continuously, this fire must also be kindled from the altar. You light the menorah from the altar. Look at that. The menorah, how do you light the menorah? With fire. But where did that fire come from? You strike a match? No, you get it from the altar. That's cool. That's a cool little, uh, little hybrid. You take the fire from the altar and use it to kindle the menorah. It's beautiful. You know, at the HOD, the HOD uh, barbecue cook-off, there was, there was a shkiach there. Yeah. And we couldn't light our own fire. Yeah, he's got to light it. He had to light it for us. But, yeah. but we were told that if something was, that if the fire were still burning, we could light from that. Nice. So nice. Very, very good. Yeah. Similar. So I, to me, there's a deep in, insight here. The menorah and the altar represent two different energies. And the point is that one has to be lit from the other. So what does the menorah represent? What does the altar represent? The menorah represents light and Torah, and, and clarity, and vision. The menorah is all about like clarity and vision, and wisdom. It's like wisdom, oil. It's oil. Oil is connected with wisdom, chachma, wisdom. And what's the altar, what's the mezbah connected with? Dedication and selflessness. The message here is, what's the premise of Torah learning? What's the premise of wisdom? It has to be dedication. You with me? This is daily power parasha right here. Right? There's a dedication, day in, day out. DPP, every day. 12 to 12.15, 15 minutes a day-ish, ish, around. 
a dedication, the fire of the menorah is taken from the fire of the altar. It's from the dedication of the altar that you get the light of the menorah. You can't just light the menorah. Otherwise, it's got to be predicated on the fire from the dedication. And our DPP is eternal. Just like uh, the eternal flame right there. Um, eternal as of, well, as of two years ago. There was a fire from above and a fire from below. But that was constantly. Once it started, right. it never went out. But the, that's what I'm saying, the original one. I'm not sure who lit the original. No. I think they had to light the original. They I did. think it had to come. They had to light their wood pile. Okay. Even though there was also fire, they had to also light their wood pile. Um, but, oh, look at this. Anyone who extinguishes the fire on top of the altar transgresses two negative commandments. Look at that. Don't put out that water. Don't put out that fire. Don't splash water on that thing. But I want to tell you something else. Vav 6, it says, A continuous tamid, a continuous fire, two karamas be'ach should be burning on the altar. Loi sikhbe. Do not extinguish it. It shall not go out. But there's another way to interpret it. I believe this is from the Magad of rich. I believe this is from the Magad. Not the Baal Shem Tov, the Baal Shem Tov student, the Magad, who was the teacher of the Alter Rebbe, founder of Chabad. I think he says like this, Eish tamid you have to have a fire burning on your inner altar. The inner altar of your heart. And when you have that fire burning inside, the loy, the no, will be extinguished. In other words, the hesitation that we have to do holy things, this, oh, no, it's not for me, or no, I'm, it's not, you know, I'm, I'm not ready for it, I'm not worthy of it, I'm not spiritual, I'm not a tzaddik, I'm not, I'm not a good Jew. All those no's that we have in our lives, when we tell ourselves we can't do this spiritually, when we have the fire burning, then loy, the loy, the low, the not, the no, will be extinguished. Not n- don't extinguish, but the don't will be extinguished. Or the no will be extinguished. Negativity. The negativity. Oh, the negativity will be extinguished. Thank you for saying that in English. Good. Now, let's uh, toggle Rashi off and jump into verse number seven. Verse number seven. And this is the law of the meal offering. Now, meal offering we mentioned last week. It was also a form of, a, of an ola offering, a burnt offering. You could either bring it from an animal or from birds or from flour. So now we have additional laws of the meal offering. And this is the law of the meal offering. That Aaron's sons shall bring it before the Lord to the front of the altar. And he shall, verse 8, and he shall lift, the, the Kohen, shall lift out of it in his fist from the fine flour of the meal offering and from its oil and all the frankincense that is a that is on the meal offering. If you recall last week, we spoke about the meal offering as consisting of a certain amount of flour, oil, and a bunch of frankincense, whatever that is. And the Kohen takes his hand with three fingers and scoops, three-finger scoop of the flour together with the oil, and then grabs all the frankincense the Torah says, and he shall cause its reminder, in other words, this amount of flour, oil, and frankincense, he shall cause this to go up in smoke on the altar as a pleasing fragrance to the Lord. That is what is burned on the, on the altar. Existed. I have it. There like, is frankincense. Yes, I can, I'll bring it is, it, is it a dry or a liquid? No, essential, well, I mean, it's probably, it starts off as a dry thing also. Yes, of course. So some kind of I food. feel like this was a dry because he was able to like scoop it up. It, yeah. yeah. So now it's made into an essential oil. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I would be, I would be interested to smell. Yeah, yeah, bring the air. Yeah, thank you. Okay, Donna says she has some frankincense. There you go. Essential oil frankincense. Okay, uh, verse number nine. 
And Aaron and his sons, we didn't talk about this last week. The first eight we mentioned last week. We talked about the, the scoop, the flour, the oil, the frankincense, the burning of that scoop on the altar. But here's what we didn't talk about. What do you do with the rest of it? What happens to the rest of the flour offering? Oh, you had a lot, a lot of flour, and one little scoop was taken out. What about the rest? For, yeah. Is this here separate from this here? No, it's all part of the same reading. I know it's, it's, it's part of the same reading, but the meal offering is not the same thing. No, right. Uh, good, as the ola offering. You could bring an ola offering from animals or from birds or from the meal offering. You could, yes. It could also be brought from flour. If somebody couldn't afford the animal, they could bring the flour, which was a much uh, less expensive way of, of, uh, of doing it. So what happens to the rest of the flour? And Aaron and his sons shall eat whatever is left over from it. It goes to the Kohen. It, it shall be eaten as unleavened bread in a holy place. They shall eat it in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. And as the Torah calls it, matzos te'achel. Look at that. It's Passover in a month. Matzos te'achel. I got to tell you something. Ready? True story. So there's a Jewish tradition that from 30 days before Passover, you no longer eat matzah. So that when Passover kicks in, it feels special. Right? So it's enjoyable. It's like, ah, I haven't had that in a while. So it turns out, this is a true story. You guys will love this story. Or maybe not. Or maybe you'll be horrified. Either way. Could go either way. I discovered recently, on top of my fridge, I have a box of matzah from last Passover. Okay? It's a box of matzah. Right? It's, it's the Borough Park whole wheat, like the good stuff. This is like, this will, this will cost you an arm and a leg. The Borough Park, whole, we actually have box, uh, cases of matzah out there. Anyway, a box of Borough Park whole wheat wrapped in a shrink wrap thing. Which, do you know which bakery it is? It's a Borough Park. Okay. Brooklyn. Oh, I don't know which. Um, they just call it Borough Park matzah. I don't know. I'm not sure. Anyway. So maybe there's, maybe there's only one, maybe there's more than one, I'm not sure. Um, Borough Park. Park, yeah. So I decided to roll the dice because um, this happened like Shabbos, two days ago. Today's Monday, Sunday, Shabbos, Shabbos, Shabbos afternoon. So I'm, we're sitting around, we're sitting around the table. And I'm like, oh, you know, I found, I found matzah. And then I'm thinking from 30 days before, you're not supposed to have matzah. So 30 days will be uh, Friday. Friday, this Friday will be the 15th of Adar, which is 30 days before the 15th of Nisa. So I'm like, we only have a few days to eat this matzah or get rid of it. But no, well, I, no, I'm not, not going to do that. Wait another year. So um, one less box to buy. So I decided to open it up and try it. And you know what? Tasted the same. Tasted the same. Identical to the way it tasted last Passover. Couldn't tell that it was sitting for 11 months. Ugh. So somebody was joking with me. They were like, yeah, it was probably from two years it? ago. Huh? Could you have used it this year? You know, I, once it's out and about, I feel like it's not in a, in a hermetically sealed, not, not literally, but it's not. The box is sealed. I know, but I still feel a little uncomfortable it's if something was out. It's been around, even though it's sealed. It's You're right. Amongst, it's been amongst, food. right. It's been amongst, yeah. like others. It's been fraternizing with the enemy, so yes. to speak. So yes, I could take, cut the plastic, and under the plastic, it hasn't been fraternizing. But I don't know. It's just too. Why, why do it? Who knows what's happening in the matzah bakeries? Maybe they're eating tuna sandwiches over it. I don't know. No, I'm kidding. No, they are not. They're not. They are not doing that. Trust me. I was joking. But the point is that um, I just felt like I wanted to get rid of it. I wanted to try it. I tried. Everyone loved it. The kids. Everyone's munching on it. It's great. It's fantastic. Glad we. I'm glad it stuck around. 
all this time. So what's the gross part? The that gross is part is that it's a, a year old matzah. That, on the top of the refrigerator. Yeah. <laughs> it's still good. It's still good. You know, the Manischewitz company made it rich because they made the machine matzah, and you know who they sold it to? People traveling west. They did it in, he was from Cincinnati or St. Louis or one of these places. Rabbi Manischewitz. It wasn't his name, Manischewitz. That was a fake ID that he had to escape uh, Europe. It's a whole story. His name was not even Manischewitz. Anyway, he started his Manischewitz company, and um, they made a killing in the early 1900s, selling it to... Yeah, because it never went... Because you bought bread, it spoiled. By the time you got to California for your gold rush or whatever it was, you, yeah, you didn't make it because you didn't have any food. Manischewitz, you're good to go for a few years, apparently. It's our movie. Remember we saw it in the... Which one, which one? About the Western Revolution. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, what's it called again? Uh, you know, growing up, um, we had neighbors who were Catholic. And they'd always beg us after Passover. They wanted the matzah. Give us a matzah. But you know why? It's because I think uh, their holy bread. Oh, the wafer yeah, the thing. Wafer, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Could, be. Could be. Could be. Yeah, it's not, Could not be. I think so. Yeah. Oh, anyway, so yeah, so speaking of not leaven, so that's how we got onto this, because this flour that the flour offering, the remainder of the flour offering that's eaten by the Kohen is not allowed to be made into chametz. It had to be matzos te'achil. It has to be eaten as unleavened bread, matzah. There you go. All right, uh, verse 10 doubles down. It shall not be baked leavened. That means chametz. You want to see the word chametz? Boom. Lo te'afeh chametz. Verse 10, third word. It should not be made chametz. Chametz, yep. no chametz. As their, it's not, it's, it's no, not Passover related, it's temple related, right? Don't eat chametz in the flower offering. As their portion, I've given it to them for my fire offerings. God says, I'm sharing with them. You tell the priest, God says to Moses, that I'm sharing with them. Because really, it's a fire offering, and really the whole thing should be burnt on the altar. Just like the animal was burnt on the altar completely for the old offering, this should be completely burnt, burnt on, the, on, the, on, the, on the altar. But I'm only taking a, a, a scoop and the rest you can eat. It's a holy of holies. Like the sin offering and like the guilt offering, any male among Aaron's sons may eat it. This is an eternal statute for your generations from the fire offerings of the Lord. Anything that touches them shall become holy. Okay, that takes us to the end of the first reading. Let's do a few cook Rashi's. Let's see what we got over here. Rashi says, survey says. I've got a good one ahead of us. Which one, which one? It was about the uh, three-finger offering. Okay, hold on one second. Let's see, let's Kamitza. see. The Kamitza. Um, By the way, the meal offering was brought to the southwestern corner of the altar. Southwestern corner of the altar would mean, if this is the orientation of the altar, southwest would be boom, boom would be this corner. So right where you are, you're in the southwest corner of this table configuration. Both of you guys are actually like that corner. Um, and the verse, because the verse says before the Lord, western side, okay, got that front of the altar, south side, because the ramp was coming up from the south to the north. That makes sense. Um, verse 8. This teaches us that he may not make a measure for a fistful, but rather he must use his fingers directly. Um, the note I have on that. Yeah, what do you have? Is um, what is Yoma? Yoma is a Talmud, tractate in Talmud. It says the verse could have said, "He shall separate it 
from its three-finger fold. Right. Um, he shall separate it from, from it in his three-finger folds implies that it must be separated directly from the hands of the Kohen, of the Kohen. Right. And not by means of a vessel which holds three-finger folds. Amazing. So Rashi and the Talmud clarify, Talmud clarifies, Rashi tells us here, citing the Talmud and the Midrash, that you don't use, imagine if you could create a measuring cup and say, oh, this is exactly a three-finger full. So instead of actually doing the scoop and the, and the whole you know, thing, we'll just measure it out. We got, we got, we got the equivalent and uh, we, got a, we got a cup. No, it's got to be done, hand done. This gets into the handcrafted idea. Matzah as well. Get a, one box. Get one box. We'll have them here also. Get one box of, uh, of handmade matzah. Even if you're doing the other one's machine. One box at least. That's Help cook, right. Right, cooking with Rabbi Ari, exactly. It's not just to get the food, but it's also maybe to make it, or at least to you know, spice it up a little bit. Some, yeah, something that we do hands-on. Yeah, yeah, kosher gourmet is fine, but just add a little salt. Do, do a little, uh, kick, it up, uh, kick it up a notch, a drop. Um, just trying to see what I want to do over here. We already talked about the frankincense. Da -da -da -da. Leavened. Do not bake it leavened. Okay, we talked about that. Guilt offering, an email. Touches and shivical holy. Okay, let's move on to the second reading. Ooh, it's late-ish. Um, okay, I think we can leave it for now. Okay, let's say we had a celebration. We did a lot of stuff today. We had a celebration. We had champagne. champagne. We had hamantashen, perhaps. And we did reading number one. I want to leave you with a few insights, a few... A few uh, Thoughts from reading number one. The constant flame. We mentioned this a few times. Constant flame on the altar, and we, and we tied it into DPP. You know, there's something to be said about um, exciting special occasions. S things that happen that are out of the ordinary. Right? Like today. <laughs> But today is something out of the ordinary that celebrates something that is regular. But hey, there are things that are like, you know, out of the ordinary, like a special event or a holiday. Purim is coming up. It's once a year, it's a holiday. It's, it's a wonderful thing. It's, it's out of the ordinary. We dress up, we celebrate, we make merry. I should probably mention tonight, Purim Boot Camp, right here, 7.30 p.m., online as well. Um, there are things that stand out of the norm and stand up and announce themselves, and it's very special. And it's very festive. But then there's the regular day in, day out, the regular stuff, regular commitments, the regular opportunities that we have. And there's something special about the consistency, something special about the eternal flame. Not, the, not necessarily the brightest flame, but the one that you can rely on consistently that will always be there. So yes, there might be opportunities that are you know, big and brash and bold, but it's the consistency. And I say that in the context of, I, I don't actually mean this directly, and I didn't intend it for this, but it also fits this. You know, we have the, mo the most people we get for programs are special events. You do a one-time event with a special speaker, we'll have, you know, BC before COVID, we would have like 100 plus people, whatever it is, you know, maybe even more, 200, depending on the speaker, on the, on the opportunity. But something that happens every day, you're not going to get 200 people. It's just not, it's just not, 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 it's not, it's not, I mean, theoretically you could, but it's, it's probably not going to happen. But we have a group of people that are committed to studying, right? Daily study, weekly study, you know, regular courses, consistent weekly courses. 
in addition to like the big once-off, you know, opportunities. And I think there's something very special about in the eternal flame, the fire that keeps on burning. It might not be the brightest. It might be, you know, special occasion, you might have a brighter light. But it's about that consistent burning. And that requires consistent effort. And I want to um, give my kudos or appreciation, Yashar Koach, if you will, to all of you. Because every day there's a commitment to come out to study Torah. Whether it's in person or online, or it doesn't matter. But there's a, there's a commitment. There's, there's an action that you all have to take. And that's kind of like putting that fire on the altar. You can't expect the fire to be there by itself. You have to literally prepare the wood and put it on the altar. You have to take an, make an effort to put it over there. And so every one of you, every one of us here, makes an effort to be part of this community, part of this Torah study community. And so thank you for being part of it. Thank you for keeping the fire burning. And uh, let's, let's continue to stoke our fires and to shine brightly in the world. You know, what occurs to me, the opposite of fire would be water. Yet, if you go inside a cave, and here and there, if a cave has a tiny bit of water getting into it, you'll see incredibly beautiful formations of mm. stalactites, which come down from the top, which like might. Chattanooga. From the bottom, yeah. Yeah, uh, and this is from that tiny drop of water dripping down day, minute after minute, nice. day after day, year after year. And you see these incredibly beautiful formations from what was just an inconsequential drop. So. Nice. Mark is saying how water, Torah is also likened not just to fire, but to water. And with water, one drop goes into a cave, and the next thing you know, it can produce a dazzling, beautiful... Stalactites, stalagmites. Yeah, Ruby Falls. <laughs> I remember Ruby Falls. Gorgeous, right? It's beautiful. You walk through, and then you see these falls. It's like unbelievable. One little drop of water can make a lot of beautiful things. One drop of water is what changed the the life of Rabbi Akiva. He was forty years old. He didn't know how to read Hebrew. He walked by. He saw that there was a stone that had a hole in it. He said, how does the stone have a hole in it? It's weird. Like, uh, imagine a stone and inside is a hole, right? I mean, that's a bead, right? That's a bead. <laughs> that's, that's called jewelry. Donna's like, that's not unusual. I got some right here. <laughs> what do you mean? But, but he was taken aback by this. And he noticed that there was water dripping, slow, dr one drop at a time. After who knows how many years, the water had bored a hole through the stone. He said, if water, which is soft, you know, look, can make a hole in stone, which is hard, then Torah can penetrate even my brain, my mind. Wow. And he said, I'm going to go to yeshiva and study. And he went, and he became one of the greatest scholars of all time, to the point that there's a measure that says that Moses was once shown Rabbi Akiva's teachings. God put him in the back row. God transported him, put him in the back row. And Moses said, I don't even understand what he's talking about. Like, I don't, like, it's so brilliant. And, and he felt bad. And God says, don't worry, everything comes from you. Like everything, he's building everything off of your, your wisdom, so don't feel bad. But Rabbi Kiva was top. He only started at 40. How long? Hebrew, he started Hebrew at 40. How long did he live? He, I'm not sure, he was, he, was, he was murdered by the Romans, ultimately, for teaching Torah. Yeah, um, he's one of the martyrs, one of the ten martyrs that were killed by the Roman emperor for teaching Torah. How old was he? I don't remember. I don't remember. Um, but he studied for 12 years in a yeshiva. His wife, his wife was also instrumental. Rachel was her name, Rachel. She sent him to yeshiva. And he came back 
after 12 years. And as he approached his house, she overheard, he overheard her saying, ah, I wish you, he's coming. She was telling a friend, he's coming back today. I wish you would stay longer in the yeshiva. That sounds, I know what that sounds. I know what that sounds like. But she meant it in the best way. So he goes back to yeshiva for another 12 years. <laughs> Legit. Legit. This is a true story. No, I mean, they may have children before that. Yeah, they, I think they had some kids. I, anyway, bottom line is, I, I'm not saying he didn't come back at all in between, but he was, you know, he was dedicated to, yeshiva, to study for 24 years. He eventually had 24,000 students. Many of them passed away in the times of the Omer, between Passover and Shavuot, which is why it's a time of mourning. Um, 22,000 students. I don't think 24, 22,000 students, I believe he had. Why were they killed by the Romans? No, there was a plague that broke out. Anyway, that's, that's it for another time. But the point is that the water is very apt. Water, consistent, dripping. And also, one can start studying Torah at any time. Any time is a good time to start. Good. All right. I'll let you all go because it's been 15 minutes. It's 1.17. Oh, wait, wait. That's 1.17. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry. I tried to register for tonight's class, but I don't see the link to Zoom. Is there any chance oh. you can paste it here or like where can yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I will... Um, I will give me a second. Let me let me quickly double check that. I will. You know what? I'll email you the link. Okay. If that's Sounds okay. Good, yeah. No problem. Yeah. You just sent the email. Yeah. I'm gonna send you. Yeah. I'm gonna send you the link. So anyone who wants to join tonight. It's a Torah Studies boot camp, boot camp Combo. Just email me or sign up on the website. It's a free class. Uh, sponsorship's available, but free class. If you want to jump in on that, just email me, and I will send you that link. Um, oh, yeah, I got you covered. I'll send you a link in a few minutes. Okay? Sounds all right, great to see you. Great to study together. I'll let you all go. All right, we'll see you soon. Take care. Have a wonderful day. See you in a few hours.